indeed, there it is, Genesis chapter uh, 1. Weeks 3 in our series, Believe It, Big Ideas About God. This week, we get to the doctrine of uh, creation. After Friday of this coming week, everyone will be thinking about creation as the film, the blockbuster film, uh, Creation is released in the UK, uh, tracking something of Darwin's life. And that's a good thing. We should welcome the conversation. We should be glad for the discussion. One of the interesting facts uh, in, in most surveys, both in the US and in the UK, around the issue of creation, is that whilst many people have very strong and determined beliefs about it, many people, because of the answers they give in their surveys, are vastly uh, uh, uneducated, if you like, about the complexities of some of the issues. And so we should welcome the debate. Forever the truth shall reign. Truth will stand. We needn't be fearful of it. If you want to think about it all further than what I'll share with you this morning, uh, then I put some things on my blog. Access the blog, front page of the website, or just uh, forward slash Simon's blog, Burlington What's It, What's It, forward slash Simon's blog. I put some things there for you to think about. Uh, when you can't sleep, it's a good place to go. Uh, you'll sleep very quickly. Uh, just press a few links and away you go. You'll be off. But if you're serious about grappling with the issues, then there are some things there to uh, get you started. And whilst I want us to fight our way through some of those issues this morning, I want to push forward that we might get to what I consider to believe to be the more important questions and the more important issues. What are the questions science wants me to answer about creation. I don't think they're the most important questions. And if we understand God's Word as being God's revelation to us, we'll begin to see that the questions our culture is asking are not the most important questions on God's agenda either. And the trouble is we get consumed by our agenda and we don't get any further than that and we're in danger of missing sometimes the big things that God wants to say because we get locked into all of these discussions. More important for the doctrine of creation is the question, what does God want me to know? What questions does God want me to know the answer to? And uh, we'll look at those hopefully this morning. The obvious place to start then is Genesis chapter 1, the story of God's creation that you've just heard read to you. And as soon as you start there, that's where our troubles begin. So I'm going to pray, I need some help, you need some help, and then we're going to work really hard together for the next, ooh, next little bit of time, okay? Let's uh, pray. Father, we thank you that your truth reigns, your truth stands, and in that confidence we come this morning to you and to your word. Help me to be clear, help our understanding to be clear, help us to think and engage with the things that you are offering us, and above all else, may we be drawn to you, the creator. May we look beyond creation to the one who draws us and uh, reigns his love on us and sings his love over us even this morning. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Because we are in a particular culture, dominated by a scientific Western worldview, we expect God's account of creation to answer the questions that we are asking. Because our culture teaches us that those are the most important questions. Simply put, science when it comes to creation, is dominated by the pursuit of an answer to when, when was the world made, and how, how was the world made. So we pick up our Bibles, and we open them at Genesis chapter 1, preconditioned to be looking for answers 
to the, the questions that our culture is demanding of us. We live in a particular culture at a particular time. And there are immediately three problems with doing that when we come to Genesis. The first is, it's not a scientific textbook. That might seem obvious, but we need to remind ourselves. We would assume, if we picked up something today talking about creation, that it would be scientific. We make that assumption wrongly when we come to the Bible. We must pause, wake up, engage our brains and remind ourselves that this is not a scientific textbook, it's not trying to be or in any way attempting to be. The Bible is made up of all kinds of different literature, some of its law, some of its history, some of its prophetic, some of its poetry, some of its didactic, it teaches us things and so on. Do we believe the Bible is true in all that it conveys to us through all of its variety? Yes, Absolutely, 100%, unquestionably, yes. Do we believe that every word of the Bible is literally true? No. No, that would be absurd. Let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm 104, he sets the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. Ha, the Bible's wrong, the Bible's wrong. Of course the earth moves. The earth uh, moves on its own axis, moves around the sun. Of course the earth moves. The Bible's wrong. The Bible doesn't understand what's obvious. Therefore we dismiss it. That's a ludicrous interpretation of what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is presenting a hymn. It's poetry. He's speaking about how the earth is, is solid for us. The seasons come and go. They can be depended upon. If you read the whole psalm, that's obvious. He's not trying to answer in any way a scientific question about the way the earth relates to the sun, the moon and the stars. It wasn't on his agenda. It wasn't what he was thinking about. It wasn't what he was attempting to do. Or consider this one. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. If you take it literally, you will be looking out for the day when on the horizon you see a a pair of celestial eyes rolling towards you. Those are God's eyes coming to strengthen you. If that happens, pick those eyes up and roll them back. God might need them. That's obviously what's not being said. We do not take every word to be literally true. Different types of literature, different ways of communicating. Genesis is not a scientific textbook. In parts, it's very poetic, especially in these early chapters. The indentation of the paragraphs there might just give you a little clue. It might be better for us had someone written, this might be a poem at the top of chapter 1. It might have saved people a lot of headache and heartache. Now, if you're looking for scientific answers about the creation of the world, you probably wouldn't go to a poetry book exploring the world in which we live. You would recognise immediately that a poetry book is not attempting to give you a scientific answer. Whilst the broad subject would be the same, both a scientific textbook and a book of poems about the world are trying to communicate truth, they're trying to communicate that truth differently with a different agenda. It's not that one is true and one isn't, it's just different. Can poetry convey truth? Of course it can, and it often does. Can poetry convey factual truth? Of course it can, and often it does. But the emphasis is different. Thirdly, Genesis is answering very different questions. We assume, because we read it today, it's answering the questions that we are asking. No. 
Very clearly, it can be demonstrated to be a polemic, a response to the questions the culture of the day were asking. And that stands to reason. If you're going to write about something, you're going to write in a way that addresses the questions that are being asked back then. The questions being asked then had nothing to do with our scientific questions. Those issues were not on their agenda. They were asking different questions, and Genesis is trying to answer them. Genesis is not concerned with the when or the how in the way we are dominated by those questions in our culture. Unless we remember all this, we quickly get stuck. We pick up Genesis and we read chapter 1, and there it tells us God made the world. He took five days to prepare the world for humanity. On the sixth day, he made man, and on the seventh day, he read the paper and washed the car. That's essentially what it says. That's what he did. From nothing to everything in six days. There. And that's absolutely fine. And then you trace the ancestry that goes through Genesis and beyond, and you can work out how old human beings are. And you go, okay, they're roughly 10,000 years, give or take 10,000 years plus. Hey, but, you know, who wants to dispute uh, uh, at that level? And so you, you draw your conclusion, absolutely fine, until your son or daughter comes home from school and says to you that most, if not all, of the best scientific minds think that the world is 4.5 billion years old. And suddenly you feel trapped. You don't know where to go. You have to rubbish the Bible or you have to rubbish science. And you're caught in the headlights because frankly you don't want to do either. But maybe it's not like that. Maybe it's not like that. Whilst we don't need to defend Genesis as a scientific text, maybe even so, even though it was writing to uh, a different audience, seeking to respond to different issues and different questions, could it be that Genesis does reflect, in part, something of what science has, in inverted commas, discovered. Look with me at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There's a tension in the air, isn't it? You're not sure where I'm going with this, are you? I think that's enough for today. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's sing the next hymn. So, we read this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he, he created the earth that was formless and empty, and, and so on. All, all, all in, a, in a straightforward chronological progression with no gaps. But you could read it like this. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but linguistically all that I understand suggests that this is possible. And indeed, reasonable. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, full stop. Out of nothing... He created the heavens and the earth. And we'll come back to that. God made all the stuff. And then at a later date, verse 2, he took the earth and the heavens, all the stuff that he had made, which was still formless and void, and started to create it ready for human inhabitation. So the six days are when God shaped the earth for humanity, not when he created the stuff from which he would make the earth in the first place. On that basis, the earth can be as old as you like. 4.5 billion would be fine. I'm not saying this is true, but it is a legitimate approach for all of us that want to say this is the Word of God, 
We seriously want to respond to what it's saying. We want to understand it in the way that it's given. We want to understand the world in which God has given us and the minds that he's given us to think. Others say, no, no, no. A much more straightforward reading of Genesis 1 is that it all just happened in the way that we normally uh, think about it happening. Therefore, the earth is uh, not old, as science suggests. The earth is young, as the Bible says. Is that a totally ridiculous position, position to say that the earth is young? No, I don't think so. That's reasonable. Science is not perfect. There will be more discoveries. Later on, scientists might conclude that the world is much older than the 4.5 billion, or they might decide it's considerably younger than they first thought. Science relies on observation. By definition, our observation is incomplete. So proponents of a young earth would say the earth might look 4.5 years, billion years old from our vantage point, but that doesn't create a certainty about it. It's only our observation. It's only the way it appears to us at the moment. And they give reasonable reasons for this. They say that if the earth suffered a catastrophic tragedy, the earth would be stressed because of that and therefore look a lot older than it actually is. I look a lot older than I am because of the stress of four children. Stress does something to you. So if the world went through a cataclysmic stress, it would look older. There is scientific evidence for such a cataclysmic catastrophe. In fact, if you've been reading the Bible readings over this last week, you will have read of one. Won't you? Genesis chapter 6. So those who put forward a young earth position say, well, okay, it looks that old. It doesn't mean it actually is. And there's good reason why it might look that old. Furthermore, they point out that we assume that God created the earth young. In other words, God created a baby earth that needed to grow, move towards the maturity that we know uh, today. They point out, and I like this, they point out that Adam was not created young. He was created mature. If you met Adam a day after creation, you said, Adam, how old are you? He would go, I'm one day. You'd go, wow, you're very big for one day old. He, why? God made him mature. If God made Adam mature, why could he not have made a world that was mature? And so the way the world looks mightn't exactly be the whole story about it. So then there are these two positions, old or young earth. And we're simplifying it. There are other variations on a theme, but basically those are the two things. So what's the answer? Is the earth old or young? Yes. Yes. I have my own personal leanings, but I'm happy to accept that we do not have a definitive answer. Was the Bible trying to give us, this is the important bit, was the Bible trying to give us a definitive answer? No. Should we try and deduce a definitive answer from the Bible that has not attempted to give one? No. In the end, does it matter, old or young earth? No. It's a fascinating question, but it's not the most important one. And the same is true for the how. All this debate about six days or an extended period of time, an evolutionary process, mechanism that created uh, the world, science overwhelmingly supports an evolutionary process. Although there is great debate about how and why and what that evolutionary process entails exactly. If by evolution you mean an evolving world that spontaneously, self-spontaneously, and utterly randomly with no governing laws 
evolved, then the Bible would argue against that. And in fact, so would Darwin himself. If you mean by evolution that the world developed and grew and matured, evolved over time, then you could argue, you could argue that Genesis supports that conclusion. You say, no, it doesn't. Six days is six days. It's there in my Bible. Well, maybe it is. But maybe it isn't. Remember, Genesis is not a scientific textbook. It was not written to answer your questions about how the world was made. That's not what the writer was trying to achieve. And in any case, the six days is confusing. It's confusing because the seventh day was the day when God read the paper and washed the car. He entered into his rest, which theologically still goes on today. So it's an awful long seventh day. Moreover, the differentiation of day and night does not come, if you read it carefully, until the fourth day, when the lesser and the greater and the light and the night and and all of that. So the first few days weren't exactly 24 hours in our understanding of it necessarily. And in any case, the word day that was used, the Hebrew word, is used also in the Bible not to mean 24 hours, but to mean a period of time. It's true too that Jewish rabbis and early Christian fathers like Augustine never imagined that Genesis was saying six 24 hours was the way that the world was made. That strength of feeling to this particular uh, issue is a relatively recent phenomenon. However, there are good arguments for suggesting that the six days is literal, especially the way later passages of the Bible refer to them, especially the way it talks about our lives being in a rhythm of of seven days, six and one, uh, the Sabbath, and so on. And in any case, the various evolutionary theories are not exactly problem-free or anything like as watertight as maybe sometimes we're led to believe. So what's the answer? Was the world created in six days or through an extended evolving process? What's the answer? Yes. Got the idea? Yes. That's the answer. I might have my own personal leanings, but I'm happy to accept we do not have a definitive answer concerning how the world was made. Was the Bible trying to give us a definitive answer concerning how the world was made? No. Should we, therefore, try and deduce a definitive answer from the Bible when it was not attempting to give one? No. In the end, does it matter? Mm. In the end, does it matter? Not as sure about that one. It's a fascinating question, but it's not the most important one. Whatever you believe about the age of the earth, it neither proves nor disproves who made it. Who is the most important question, not when and how, it's who. Whatever you believe about the process, the mechanics of how the world was made, it neither proves nor disproves the existence of God. If you really want to explore that, if you want to think about how uh, uh, believing or being committed to an evolutionary process does not mean uh, or threaten in any way your theistic belief, then go to the blog, follow some of the links there, and uh, help you think through it a bit further. In popular belief... We have been told and assumed and believed that either God created the world or there was something more like what Darwin's been on about. That's a false equation. That's not the the, the biggest issue or the most fundamental issue. Darwin could be right and God still could have created the heavens and the earth. There is a more fundamental question, not when, not how, but who. And when you boil it all down, the greater question is this. Either nothing made everything, or God made everything. Those are the only two choices. All the arguments, all the textbooks, all the scientific theories, everything that there is, these stand aside for this issue. 
This is by far the biggest question. And two comments, maybe a few more. Both require faith. Popular evangelists for atheism, like Richard Dawkins and his God delusion, consistently say that option one, that nothing made everything, is the result of scientific proof. We prove that. Whereas option two, that God made everything, well, that's the result of blind faith. It sounds impressive, but it's wrong. The person who believes everything came from nothing is just as much exercising faith, we might say even more faith, than the person who says God made everything. They're both putting their faith in something, just different things, and they can neither conclusively prove one to the other which is right and which is wrong. So do not please buy into the propaganda that one is proved and one isn't. That isn't true. And secondly, don't accept the notion that science uh, in some way has uh, answered the question. Science neither proves nor disproves God. To draw a conclusion about God, there are other questions that need to be addressed and answered in addition to the questions that science is addressing. Again, further links on the blog, have a look. Think about the different questions that need to be asked and science can't begin to answer them all. We need to understand that science has its place, a very important place, but it only has its place. Science deals with observable facts, the establishing of certain laws by repeated observation. It doesn't deal with where those laws come from or why they are there. It can't, and it's not trying to. This statistic may surprise you. You see, popularly, we're given the impression that if, uh, if you're a good scientist, you will have no trust with a creator God. Certainly no time for a creator God in the way that Genesis might talk about him. Hasn't science disproved all that? If you go into a museum, that's the message that you'll be given, isn't it? If you read a textbook in our schools, that's the message you'll be given. Somehow science has answered all the questions and kind of disproved the existence of God by an evolutionary theory of one kind or another. That is not the case. Over 40% of active top-level scientists are Christians. People don't tell you that very often. We need to remind ourselves that those who are most engaged in understanding our world, who understand it better in terms of its mechanics than most of us here, don't feel they have to throw away their faith. In fact, for many, it underlines and, uh, and draws them closer to the God who's made this glorious world in which we live. Science hasn't answered the God question, and by itself it can't. Stephen Jay Gould was a, uh, an evolutionary biologist uh, and a Darwinian scholar. Uh, so, we know clearly what side of the fence he was on. He regarded himself as an open-minded agnostic. And he made this point, that science is very limiting in this regard. It cannot answer all the questions. To say it for all my colleagues, for the umpteenth million time, science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, adjudicate the issue of God's superintendence of nature. Don't, don't assume that science has answered the question. In the cold light of day, science will say they have not answered the question, the fundamental question about who's behind it all. So you left. Nothing made everything, or God made everything. So how do you decide? Well, if you're undecided this morning, uh, uh, get week one 
that's online or CD probably at the back. Think about those issues that we talked about, the way God has revealed himself in uh, the world in which we live. Secondly, stop being paralyzed by the false notion that science and faith are utterly opposed. That is not true. Some people would like you to believe that, but that is not the case. And read, learn, study, pray, think, reflect, observe. The Bible says if you're serious about seeking him, you will find him. And the majority of us that are here this morning have discovered that to be true for ourselves. And I would say this. I would say this. One of these options is so utterly terrifying that I suggest to you, you need to make absolutely certain that the other option isn't true before you accept it. Which option is totally terrifying? The first one. The first one. If this is true, you have come from nothing, you are here for no reason, and you're going nowhere. With the greatest respect, your life is utterly pointless. Completely meaningless. You are random with no purpose. You have no rights. You have no expectations. Human beings become completely irrelevant and accidental to some process that is outside of us. The universe is reduced, and I quote our friend Dawkins, the universe is reduced to blind forces and physical replication with no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And love, charity, compassion, altruism are tendencies grounded in underlying selfishness. That's our world. No evil. Tell that to a child who's been molested, or to a woman that's been beaten, or to a man that's been tortured. No evil. No good. Tell that to a person who's lived all their lives giving up themselves for the sake and the good of others. Option one is terrifying. Your life is utterly meaningless and totally pointless. Nothing of value. There's no person here of any worth. You're random. You're meaningless. You're pointless. I can spit on your face. So what? You don't matter. You're not for anything. Totally unexpected on the horizon of nothingness. Those like Dawkins accept that this is the conclusion. Quentin Smith, an atheist philosopher, he put it like this. The fact of the matter is that the most reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. We should acknowledge our foundation in nothingness and feel awe at the marvellous fact that we have a chance to participate briefly in this incredible sunburst that interrupts without reason the reign of non-being. You get a universe that makes you want to crawl into a corner and die. There is... No point. Dawkins says, if this reality makes you depressed, then that's your problem, and you need to deal with it. He'd make a great pastor, wouldn't he? (laughs) Deal with it. I have to say, there is something in most people that absolutely screams against that conclusion that I've just made absolutely fundamentally, that cannot accept deep in the core of our beings that there is no purpose, no right and wrong, no value to our lives, nothing more than a pointless collection of mutated cells sit in church every week. We scream against that. Over the years, I've sat with hundreds of families weeping over people they've lost as we planned their funeral service. And for them, the service is packed with meaning because of the value they place on the people they have lost. The idea that their lives were pointless and utterly meaningless is abhorrent. That, for me, is one of the biggest reasons that I'm compelled to the other option. 
that behind all this is a God who's given life and gives each life dignity, purpose, value and meaning. Now some people say, well, that's just your crutch. You can't bear the fact that it's that depressing. Belief in God is not our search for meaning. Belief in God is trying to understand the meaning that we already have. The big difference. Instinctively, all across this world, people understand there's a meaning. Our belief in God is our response to that. Not our need to find him, which is how some people would present it. That's page one of those notes. I've got, I don't know how many. See, it's the wrong, we get hijacked into the wrong issues here. I got quite mad about it this week, really. Because it, it's sort of like, the, the agenda's immediately hijacked. So that we never open up Genesis and let it speak to us. And for, for a few minutes, it gets more encouraging now. For a few minutes, we just, just, let's, just let Genesis speak to us. What would God want to say about us and his world if he was writing the account? We believe it's his special revelation. We believe he wrote and inspired the account. We believe these are the things he wants us best to understand. Let's not be so pompous and arrogant as to put our questions, as if they're the most important, onto a text that was never seeking to address them or answer them directly in the first place. What does Genesis teach about creation? Well, it teaches us it's not the when or the how, but the who. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This world, this universe, this life is all about God. It's all about God. If you think your life is about you, you'll never be the person you could be. If you think your life is all about you, you'll never be the person you were created to be. Rick Warren was absolutely right with the opening phrase of his purpose-driven life. When he stood against, contrasted all the self-help books that there are, every magazine you get in the, uh, in the, new, in the uh, newsagents, how to better yourself at this, how to better yourself at that, me, 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 he echoed the first line of Genesis, it's not about you. If that comes as a great disappointment, then I'm sorry. But it's not about you. This is not your story. The key to understanding the will God has given and the life you have to live is that it's not about you. And secondly, if that's not uh, uh, depressing enough for you, try this one, it all belongs to God. God made, created, the word uh, created is a Hebrew word that means out of nothing. God, even the stuff that was used belongs to God. He created it all out of nothing. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. God owns everything. He owns the apple orchard. And he owns the trees in the apple orchard. And he owns the apples on the trees. And he owns the juice in the apple. He owns every plant, every rock, every animal, every person, everything. Everything. He made it all out of nothing. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was made out of what is not seen. All made by him. All belonging to him. Secondly, the phrase, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's an all-encompassing phrase. God created it all from head to toe, from top to bottom, from left to right, from side to side, all, it's all his. The earth is the Lord and everything 
in it. The world and all who live in it. It's his dream, his plan, his design, his effort, his work, his delight. He saw it all and it was good. He took pleasure in the work of his hands. All of it is, every bit of it is, every space of it is, every time of it, all his. And it's still his because the Bible says he sustains it every single day. He keeps this world going. It belongs to him even now. He owns you. He owns me. He owns your house. He owns the bed we sleep in, the cup we drink from, the food on our table, the table itself, the chairs around the table, all his. He owns your car, your bike, your bus pass, your computer, your iPod, your golf clubs, your assets, your inheritance, all his. Every last CD, his. All of it, his. He made it from nothing. All of it, his. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. We can get quite possessive about our stuff, can't we? That's mine. You know, I love it when you go to someone else's house and you see something that's yours. You're busting to say, aren't you? That's mine. And only good English decorum, social politeness uh, may or may not stop you from going, that's mine. God, every now and again, shouts from heaven, that's mine. In Leviticus, he shouted from heaven, he said, look at all the land, you think you own it, you buy and sell it, you swap it around. God says, that's mine. So every 50 years, I want you all to give it back to the person who had it in the first place. Just to remind you that it's mine. All mine. Then in the Psalms, God says, see all the animals on the hillside? Every single one of them, they're all mine. The animals of the forest is mine. The cattle on the thousand hills, all mine. It's like God can't resist it. He doesn't want to be polite anymore. I just want you to remember, it's all mine. And then he talks about money. And everyone's touchy about money, so we'll use this first. God says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine declares the Lord Almighty. And at that point, something inside of us, our little individualistic, capitalistic approach to life says, no, that's not right. It's not God's. It's mine. I worked for that. This house, it's mine. I worked 40 years to pay for that house. These holidays, they're mine. I worked long hours to earn those holidays. This money, it's mine. It was my sacrifice, my energy, my vision, my success. Brought it all to me. And people who live like that are pompous and arrogant, aren't they? Thank you. Someone agrees. And God says, just as a little reminder, early on in God, I don't want you to get too big-headed about this. Remember the Lord your God. It's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It's all his. Nothing to do with you, really. Remember the wealth and honour come from you, O Lord. You are the ruler of all things. Each one of us would be nothing without God. What pompous arrogance sometimes rises within us when we justify our own achievements. God did it, not you. The God who could have made us a snail or a flower, but instead made us a creature gifted in his image. It's all his, isn't it? All of it. We both belong to God. And thirdly, because we all belong to God, it's all for him. It's all for God. Things were created by him and for him. You know sometimes when you go, I made that, it's mine. God says that about the world. I made that, that's mine. That's for me, for my honour, for my glory, for the display of my splendour. This world, for my pleasure. Psalm 148 celebrates how the whole world God made as his to give him glory and honour. All of it was created by him and for him. And it's a reminder that there is an essential connectedness between the creator and the created. We say flowers were made for the sun. 
What we mean by that is that unless a flower orientates itself towards the sun, the light and its warmth, it will wither and die. In the same way, we were made for the Creator. This creation is for the Creator. If it does not orientate itself towards the sun, S-O-N, it will wither and die. We were made for Him. You were made for Him. If you don't orientate your life towards Him, you will wither and die. You are for Him. All His. All his. And with all that, hey, it's all about him, it all belongs to him, it's all for him. It's all about him, isn't it? God wants it always, doesn't he? He wants everything to be about him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Because it's personal. Because it's personal. This world is intensely personal because behind it is a person. Before we're told anything about the universe, we're introduced to a person. In the beginning, God. The word is plurality, a God in relationship with himself. We'll come to that when we think about the Trinity, perhaps. The Spirit of God, the person of God hovering over the water. Ultimately behind this world is not a set of laws. Gravity, genetic mutation, no, a person. The primary aspect of a person is their ability to relate. So we see that all creation is pregnant with the possibility of relationship. And that resonates with us as human beings because we're so personal. The idea that behind the existence of us is a set of impersonal laws that themselves came from nothing makes no sense of our personableness, if there is a word, and I'm not sure there is. We are personable people. By miles, the most valuable thing to us are people. All over the world, whatever culture you find yourself in, and as far as I can understand, whenever you lived chronologically, people have done the same thing. When they knew they were at the end of their lives, what they didn't do was to ask for all their certificates to look at one more time, or to go through their CV just for a final check, or to look at their job successes, or to analyse their stocks and shares, all over the world this day, as people realise they're coming to the end of their lives, they'll ask for people to come. People to come. Mothers, daughters, sons, fathers, brothers, sisters, friends, neighbours. Come. Come. I might not be here tomorrow. I want to see you today. Come. Because deeply, deeply rooted in us is our personableness. And it should not surprise us then that there's a person behind it all. And our world's so impersonal, isn't it? At the NHS, I'm a number, at the post office, I'm a postcode at the tax office, don't go there, I'm an inland revenue number, and so on. We know our neighbours less than we used to. Our families are spread around the country, if not around the globe. We long for community and belonging. We must never forget that our world is personal. That's how God made it. Mother Teresa said about uh, uh, the Western world, loneliness is the most prevalent and depressing feature of the Western world. As urgently as ever, we need to know that our world is not ultimately a cold, empty, impersonal product of time and chance. That there's a person behind it, and therefore it's personal and pregnant with the possibility of relationships one with another, and above all, relationships with the supreme creator, God. Just one more thing, maybe two. All of creation, therefore, is valued by God because it's personal. This is his baby. 
And this is important to understand. You see, if behind the world is a set of uh, uh, laws, electricity is a, uh, or, or, or sorry, if behind the world is, is, is kind of impersonal force of some kind, electricity or gravity or a set of physical laws, then there's nothing personal about it. And non-personal things cannot endow value on you. When the electricity comes on in my home, it is not saying, Simon, we're doing this because you're worth it. An input cannot in any way express value. But if there is a God, then it's totally different. This world is valued. It's his baby. He loves it. And God saw that it was good. He took delight in it. Can you imagine God chatting with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Let's create the light. And whoosh, there was light. And God going, wicked, look at that. Wicked as in a really good sense, not in a bad sense. We're going to do that in a fortnight. You know, God, God was thrilled with the world that he'd made. Wow, this is good. I'm loving it. Day one, whatever that is. Don't get hang up on that for a minute. Whoa, this is, look at that. Then we're going to do this over here. I'm going to do that over there. And, and we know that men and women, the climax are coming. And it's this there and away we go. It was love and value and passion and life that brought this world into being. There's a person. It's personable. We must never forget it. God's baby. Which means above all, you're valued by God. Above all. Genesis teaches us, the climax of Genesis chapter 1, you're valued by God. Let us make man, not like all the other things, let's do something even, even better, even greater here. Let's make them in our image. Let's make them like us. Let's make it special. God created the man, and then God brought uh, the woman, and the man went, wow, woman. Like me, but different. Thanks, Donald. You got it. Yeah. It's lost on most of them. Aren't it? And what did he do? He saw it was very good. This is personal. This is his. He designed it and made it. Loves it. Delights over it. Has passion for it. If we came from nothing, there is no value to your life. You will have to grab what finite, fragile, temporary value you can grab from the people around you, but if they came from nothing, what value does their value have for you anyway? By contrast, if a person is behind it all, an infinite and eternal person who planned you, loves you, made you, values you, who's given you value, it's a beautiful thing. Michael Lloyd puts it like this, and I finish. If there is an eternal person behind creation who values us infinitely, then our value is not dependent on the vicissitudes of our achievements or the fluctuating state of our relationship with family and friends. It doesn't have to be earned and it cannot be forfeited. It is given and grounded in the gracious and gratuitous love of God the Creator. Our value is secure. How fantastic is that? And that's the message of creation, and we must never forget it. Let's pray.